Hello, my name is Rob Edwards, and this, it's my podcast. Welcome back, one and all. Brand new episode of Storycast, Rob, coming your way right now. Um, If you're a regular listener, I do apologise for missing out on July. Uh, There were holidays, there was a book launch, there was parties, and basically it's my fault because I had fun, and I do apologise for that, and I hope you'll forgive me. Um, Anyway... Uh, To celebrate my return, I do have a full story for you today. It is my story from Inkling Press's new anthology, uh, Tales of Magic and Destiny, available now from Amazon, Uh, and it is called Virtue's Blade. It's about a man with a magic sword and a problem. Uh, But before we that, a bit of of newsy type stuff, as I tend to do. First, if you are um, interested in hearing more from me, uh, do check out my Patreon, patreon.com slash storycastrob. Uh, if you join the community there, you'll get uh, more content. At the moment, I am reading uh, chapters in progress of my novella that I'm currently writing, uh, Improbable Cause. Uh, and uh, I've got the first two chapters out already. Uh, in the next few days after recording this, I will record chapter three uh, for my Patreon uh, listeners. Uh, so if you're interested in ca- keeping up with that, even a dollar a month, uh, and you can uh, you can listen to that uh, as well. Uh, otherwise, my other in- news, I guess, is Inklings-based, uh, and that is that we are going to be uh, producing our next anthology, because that's how you celebrate a book coming out, isn't it? Starting work on the next one. The theme for the next one is pirates, and it's pirates in all their wonderful forms, in science fiction pirates and fantasy pirates and cake pirates, whatever that might be. Uh, and what I'm going to do today is I'm going to kick off something which I'm hoping to sort of make a, a semi-regular feature of the podcast, uh, which is talk about uh, what makes a good thing story. I, I need to come up with a better name for that, but today's thing is pirates. So I want to talk about what I think makes uh, a good pirate story. Uh, and to help me do that, uh, I've uh, recruited my colleague from Inklings Press, Brent A. Harris, and together we are going to have a chat about pirate stories. Uh, hello and welcome to the podcast, my friend, colleague and uh, fellow Inklings Press writer, Brent A. Harris. How are you doing today, Brent? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. I'm one of the uh, submissions editors for Inklings Press and a uh, frequent contributor. They haven't kicked me out yet. I'm very delighted to be here to talk about uh, pirates, right? Yes, absolutely. And you have, uh, you, have your, you, you are one of the Inklings members who has their own novel published. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, A Time of Need before we start, start with the rest of it? Well, you're very kind to get that plug in. Um, I'll, I'll pay pal your money later. Uh, 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 time of Need uh, perfectly segues to what we're talking about in pirates and sex because it is the type of history I'm, I'm drawing to. It's it's revolu- American Revolutionary uh, era uh, period. And so we're you know, talking about flintlocks and, and the type of uh, things that were going on, a lot of uh, piracy as well, a lot of smuggling. So if you're interested in American colonial history, uh, in that area, uh, alternate history, uh, go check out our time of need. We are talking today about pirates. And the reason we're talking about pirates today is that's going to be the next theme for the next Inklings Press anthology. And I thought anyone out there who was interested in 
pitching a story for us might be interested in what our take about what makes a pirate story. And I guess the first place to start is some of the pirate stories we know and love already. So, Brent, let's kick off. Give me one pirate story, one pirate book or movie or whatever that you've enjoyed and what makes it such a great pirate story. Horror, um, nasty baby. Um, <laughs> exactly. Pirate shows that I grew up with were the romanticized versions of pirates, the uh, the classic Gilberts, Dan Sullivan, Pirates of Penzance, um, uh, the more absurd, eclectic, um, campy pirates of like Ice Pirates. If anybody can remember that that movie. Oh, I think I have seen that. Yeah. It's the type of movies I grew up, grew up with, but I don't think those are really in keeping with, uh, and, and stories like that are fine, and, and of course, but those aren't really in keeping with what, you know, the real pirates are like, um, what it was really like back then. Uh, it wasn't in keeping with those historical, uh, not traditions, but that time period. So I think the book that most uh, brought out the tease the real life of a pirate would be um, uh, Michael Crichton's posthumous work, Pirate Latitudes, in which the entire notion of uh, the idea that a Jack Sparrow-like character could exist was just blown out of the water, uh, so to speak. Pirates were just a nasty, brutish lot that uh, did do bad things. They were bad people uh, in the scheme of things. Okay. Have you ever read uh, the, the the sort of the classic, I guess, Treasure Island? Oh, I've I've read it years ago. Actually, I don't know if I've ever read Treasure Island, but I do believe I've read uh, Kidnapped by the same author. Oh, right. Years. Yes. I see. I I'm the same. I read Treasure Island. I guess at the age you're supposed to read Treasure Island. So I was mm-hmm. sort of mid-teens. So that was a very long time ago now. That so informs the image that we have of pirates and the sort of peg legs and the parrots on the shoulder and, and the whole rom- the romantic Jack Sparrow mm-hmm. kind of idea of what a pirate might be. Especially when it was Disney-fied. Yeah. I think a lot of us remember seeing that movie. Yes, and of course, Muppet Treasure Island is another another classic. Of oh that. yeah, oh yeah, that's that goes without saying. It's one of the best uh, adaptations of literature uh, ever. <laughs> what about more modern sort of takes on pirates? Under the uh, under the uh, black flag, I think a lot of us have that book on our, ourselves, especially if you've done any sort of the like research for the time periods and sets by David Cordingly. And of course, there are there are other stories where pirates are an element. I mean, there's um, the Princess Bride with the classic Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, mm-hmm. like Kill You in the Morning. Enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. One. Of course, Pirates of Caribbean. We can't really not mention Pirates of Caribbean explicitly uh, when we're talking about pirates. It's such a big sort of cultural touchstone these days. Writing is subjective, and of course, if it's done well, a story like that could work. But that's not really what I, I'm going to be looking for when I read through submissions. I don't want a Jack Sparrow knockoff. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So what are we looking for then? What, what elements in a story let us identify that as a pirate story? Uh, I would rather spend my time talking about who you might want to focus on rather than what. 
because okay. there are so many pirates that don't have all these fascinating stories and miniseries about them that have been kind of lost to history. Hit me with a who. I want to say I say it right, but um, uh, Chen Shi, I, I, I think, is uh, one of the most world's most famous pirates in terms of what she was able to accomplish. By the end of her reign, I guess you would say she had 40,000 people under her, pirates under her employ, uh, yet we hardly ever hear anything about uh, her and her endeavors and her exploits. Be a really good alternate history there somewhere. Don't hear a lot about some of the uh, the women who uh, were very successful, very famous pirates themselves. Oh, interesting. I think I've heard. Yeah, I think I've heard a little about her story, but I, again, not not one that I'm terribly familiar with. I have to say. Yeah, I, mean, I think we we hear a little bit more about you know Mary Reed and and Bonnie. There are other pirates in other parts of the world that really haven't been talked about. And uh, it would be nice to see stories, uh, not necessarily about them per se, but maybe that archetype. You know, give us something different. Give us some pirates that are not just necessarily in the, the Caribbean. Uh, their piracy happened all over the world and continues. Uh, space pirates would be great too, of course. Time pirates. Yeah, the idea, I mean, because we have modern day pirates too. I mean, um, it's not a concept that has really gone away. No, of course. On new, new technologies. Uh, I can tell you also what I'm not looking for. Um, oh, okay. That's, that's, that's uh, an interesting uh, take. Yeah. What are you not looking for? Uh, you know, because, again, writing is very subjective. If something is done really well, it can contain all these tropey, cliche elements. But, you know, I would like to see people store, stay away from you know, Davy Jones um, yes. Yeah. Uh, curses, anything in that sort of Jack Sparrow wheelhouse, wheelhouse where, you know, there's a curse of a treasure or there's a curse of a pirate or, you know, there's some sort of curse or a hidden treasure or gold. Now, that's really interesting because, I mean, I, I kind of take the point on the curse, although, I, as you say, it can be made to work. And it's not don't write as a curse story is not the thing we're saying here. If you're writing as a curse Sorry. story, make it a good one. But I don't know. I I think that treasure is in whatever form that might be. You know, it could be a data disc. It could be a, a, a secret recipe for chocolate cake or whatever. But I think treasure is a, such a fundamental element to what makes a pirate story. Uh, it'd be like having a pirate story without a ship in it. Uh, and again, the ship doesn't have to be masts and sails and all the rest of it. But I think, you know, the... the Without a mode of transport of some sort, you haven't got a pirate story. I see. Like, I mean, the treasures sort of like the uh, the MacGuffin or the through line. Yeah, and that's great. I think you're right about that. But it needs to be, like you said, it needs to be something different, something unusual, something we haven't really heard before, but not quirky or campy. At least unless that's the type of story you're, you're doing that. But hmm. it takes a special writer to be able to pull off something campy that make it work. One thing that I would like to avoid. I don't want an anthology where every main antagonist has the word beard in his name. Yes. Black beards, and, black beards and green beards. And, yeah. I've seen many beards in my brain. A little bit of my pirate leanings comes from role-playing games, in particular GURPS. I think mm. GURPS does a, um, a better job of swashbuckling than, say, D&D &D does. And also... Um, mm. 
oh, I've never played it, but I've always been jealous of those who have. Is it Seventh Sea? Is another sort of big piratey kind of, but it's not piratey. It's actually swashbuckly. It's musketeers. It's rapiers rather than mm. cutlasses. And if someone were to offer up a story for Inklings Pirates and it was more musketeer swashbuckling, do you think we'd do you think we'd consider it? I think so. I mean, again, as long as there's a character behind it, absolutely. And I think that's key with everything. It needs to have character. But I like swashbuckling, of course. Yeah, I, you got to be careful because there's so many. There's only so many ways a pirate can brandish a sword and have the sun glistening off of that. And if you have, if I read too many brandishing a blade with the sun glinting off of it too many times, then it's going to drive me mad. Yeah, well, it's going to be an interesting challenge this one, isn't it? Because <laughs> we want pirate stories. We want it to be a pirate anthology, but we don't Absolutely. want every cliche revisited twelve times in the book. Exactly. And I think what we're going to happen is if we have, you know, three or four submissions that are all the same type of basic story, rather than being able to take all of them, we're going to only have to be able to take, you know, the best of the lot as a representative of that type of story. Okay. Um, uh, Anything else you want to say about pirates? Anything else that we want to pitch to people to make sure that people understand what we're looking for for pirates and what makes a good pirate story? So I would like to try to maybe get away from the whole Robert Louis Stevenson archetype and try for new things, diversity from diverse writers uh, of all backgrounds, because I think that's where you're going to see the most differences. At. You're not going to get the same um, story uh, if you, if you uh, cast a proverbial wider net. And so I would like to just cast as wide a net as possible. Okay, um, I think that will do it for us today. Thank you very much for joining me in uh, this chat, Brent. I hope that's inspired some of our listeners to to write for the Pirate Story Anthology for Inklings and given you a few ideas about where to go with it. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me. That was my buddy Brent talking about pirates. Uh, And as I said at the start of the interview there, do remember to check out his novel, A Time of Need. So, um time I think perhaps to read you uh, my story for today and this is taken from Enklings Press's most recent anthology Tales of Magic and Destiny uh, and it is called well I'll let me tell you that. Virtue's Blade by Rob Edwards. When the moment came again he ran. He ran leaving his meagre possessions behind. He doubted he would see them again. He ran across the village green, out past the blacksmith's forge, and on through the fields. He ran until the irritation of the pebble in his boot became a searing pain, ran until his boot filled with foul-smelling fluid, until the sharp pain faded to a dull nothingness, each impact like slapping meat on a counter. He crossed hills, forded streams, plunged into a forest. He didn't pause for food or drink or sleep, pushing through the undergrowth tore at his bare hands, low-hanging branches slapped him in the face. He had no choice but to run. Night followed day followed night, his mind passed away into something less than wakeful, even as what was left of his feet kept their pace. When he was shocked to consciousness once more, sunlight filtered through the trees again. And through it all, the thrum of that will driving him on on, 
on. He had no sense of what he was being driven to or how much of the journey remained. Only the direction, only the need, the need for him, Sablard, to be there in time. He crashed through thick ferns, cloak snagged on brambles as he passed, and the compulsion vanished. Before him, three Asaran lizard warriors surrounded a tree. They jabbed their spears upwards towards a young woman just beyond their reach. She clung to a branch that bent under her weight. The Asarans could climb up to fetch her, but they had no need. Time would bring their prey to them. Now, Sabalard. The voice was in his head. The sword was in his hand. He accelerated, plunged the blade deep into the heart of the first lizard. It died before it could even express surprise. Sablard used the impact to slow his charge, pushed his shoulder against the lizard's chest, withdrew his blade as he spun away. The remaining lizards shifted their spear points from the woman to him. The next kill would not be so easy. The pair lunged simultaneously, one high, one low. Sablard parried the lower thrust, ducked under the higher. He stepped in, but the lizards worked their shields close together, leaving no gap to exploit. He swatted the shields in frustration, but staggered back and away. The two spear tips jabbed, alternating between striking together and separately. What he couldn't dodge, he beat away with heavy parries, but he saw no opening for attack. The two lizards were trained to fight together and trained well. They had size, reach and strength over him. This wasn't a fight he could win, unless he could find a way to shift the balance. When next he parried, his back hand brushed against ferns, the clearing edge. Retreating into the undergrowth would be death. Spear tips were less hindered than sword swings in that terrain, and tip beat edge at the best of times. Instead, on the next parry, Sablard ducked right, risking a spear in the back to dash five paces along the fern line to a gnarled old tree, then step behind the trunk. The lizards followed, hissing warnings to each other in their strange Asaran language. They had two choices now. Pincer him around the tree, or stay together, pivoting, to try and keep their formation. They chose the latter, one lizard cleaving hard to the tree, the other swinging wider around. Their form was almost perfect. Sablard buried his sword in that almost. Sablard had the momentum now. The next time the final lizard jabbed low, he stepped on the spear point and carved around the Asaran's shield. The lizard fell and took Sablard's energy with it. He sagged against the tree. Only muscle memory let him sheathe his sword on the first attempt. Two days of exhaustion dumped into his system. His thoughts scattered, his knees bent. There might be more, he croaked through gritted teeth. The thought straightened his spine a little. A tiny rescue, Sir Knight, the woman said, clambering down from her tree. There might be more, Sablard said. Oh, I don't think so. I only saw the three of them chasing me. There might be more. Calm yourself, brave Sir Knight. Your prowess has carried the day. I'm sure we're perfectly safe now. For the sake of your ancestors, Sablard said, his tongue struggling to sound the words, don't say. But it was too late. Darkness descended. Sablard woke again already on his feet, stumbling forwards. The sun was a little lower in the sky. He was still surrounded by dead lizards, but the woman had gone. He couldn't see her, but he could feel her direction, still felt the pull to find her. His exhaustion, his pain, was locked away until his task was done.
locked away but not obliterated. No running this time. Not unless the threat to the woman grew immediate once more. He hobbled on dead feet, wincing with each shuffled step. Even that would have been impossible without the power of the virtue pulling him onwards. His progress was slow, but the woman's was slower. He caught glimpses of her between the trees as he hobbled in pursuit. She stopped and started, hesitating at each sound, peering nervously around each tree. Sabelard let the need pull him on, but only until he was within hailing distance. Then he fought it back, pushed it down, dragged his feet even more deliberately. Don't turn around. Don't speak. I'm here to protect you, but I can't risk you saying the wrong thing. Again. She started at his voice. Sir Knight, don't speak. Just keep walking. There's a place near here, uh, if we're where I think we are. I can get off my feet and you can ask whatever you like there, but for now I need you to keep quiet and follow my directions. Can you do that? She folded her arms, lips pressed together, but she gave a sharp nod. Good enough, he said. He guided them through the trees, fighting the urge to catch her up, using the energy the need provided to keep moving. He'd patrolled these woods in the Duke's service years gone. It took a little while to get his bearings, but when they reached the tree line, looking down a gentle hill to the wide Arrow River, he knew where they were. Back into the woods, my lady, he said. That's Asara on the other side. Not friendly territory. But the good news is I was right. There's a place nearby we can rest. She hesitated, staring out across the river into Asara. There were a group of lizards moving in close formation on the opposite bank. Is there a crossing near here? she asked. Sablard let himself move closer to her. He spoke more softly. The closest is a good five miles east of here, but the lizards are good swimmers. Come away, your ladyship. We don't want them spotting us. She nodded again, allowed herself to be led back through the trees. A short, painful walk brought them to an old ranger's nest, one of a series of hideouts the Duke's men maintained along the border. A deep burrow, well concealed from the outside, the entrance covered by branches and bracken. They'd be well hidden inside, and the nests were always left stocked with minimal supplies, refilled by regular ranger patrols. Food. Sayblood's stomach twisted in anticipation. He pulled the branches back behind them. Take a seat, your ladyship, he said. He waved towards the ground. I'll check what the supplies are like. The small supply crate was half buried in the shadiest part of the nest. Inside he found apples, on the turn but edible, packs of jerky and canteens of water. Not a feast by any means, but all of it welcome. He tossed the woman an apple, took two for himself, and a couple of strips of jerky to chew. But first, water... He drained one canteen, his stomach cramped as the cold water hit it, but even so he felt renewed. He took another canteen out for each of them. Sablard sank gratefully to the ground. Dare he take off his boots? Go on, your ladyship. Ask your questions. I'll try to answer, but if I fall asleep I apologise. It's been a heavy couple of days. Her first question was not the sort he'd expected. May we have a fire? she asked. I have a little tea we can share. 
It was a risk, but that might keep him awake, and the warmth and tea would be welcome. I have no flint, he said regretfully. Hardly a problem, she said. She leaned over the kindling in the fire pit and breathed a single word. The fire burst into life. You're a wizard, Sable said, falling back on the obvious. She nodded. Dedicated flame. Your words. A long family tradition. The flame doesn't spark for every generation. It's stronger in me than in most. Mine are more mundane, Sablard replied. My father gifted me with stubborn. My mother had ambitions for me, gave me protector. A person's words were supposed to define them, virtues or vices to aspire to or be consumed by. It rarely held true. Sablard knew many people whose words were just words. But he knew for him, his words had set his life on a path to here and now. We share something, then. Dedicated and stubborn, both aspects of perseverance, she said. Yes. He fetched a small pan from the supply crate, filled it with water, and used a Y-shaped stick to hold it over the fire. Their link through the virtue called perseverance was no coincidence. I don't generally share my words before exchanging names. Most inappropriate, she said, but with a smile. Lady Madeline Cherim. And who is my stubborn protector, Sir Knight? Not a knight, my lady. Sablard. Just Sablard. I served with Jukadar's rangers in my youth, but these days I'm a freelance, though without a lance, or even a horse. Well met, Sablard. No lance, perhaps, but that sword you carry is extraordinary. Sablard's free hand closed round the hilt of the blade. It is, he said. And you, my lady, you're a long way from home. I am, she said. I have responsibilities. They sat in silence for a long moment while the water boiled. Lady Madeline found two tin cups in the supply crate, sprinkled leaves from a pouch into each. Sablard carefully shared the hot water. I need rest, my lady, Sablard said, breaking the silence. He fought as long as he could, but the lack of immediate threat was eroding the wall, keeping the exhaustion at bay. Don't leave the nest, was my advice. If anything dangerous turns up, I'll be here. He sipped his tea, stared at his boots again. They should come off. He tugged at the right boot first. His foot inside was swollen, but with some effort it came free. The stench of days of running filled the nest instantly. The foot was red, raw, blistered, but he'd seen it worse. Time and air would both help. The other boot was more of a challenge. The sucking, tearing sound as he worked his foot up the boot was bad. The stink of rotten meat was overwhelming. The thing at the end of his leg didn't look like a foot. Blackened skin with a crust of brown and yellow, fresh cracks oozed blood and pus. Lady Madeline choked out a cough. Tears filling her eyes. Oh, Sablard. It'll heal, he said. Heal? Sablard, I'm sorry, it's beyond healing. We should... We might still save the leg if we... Darkness swelled. Sleep was coming. No, do nothing, I... This time when he woke, it was dark. 
The pain had passed, but his foot still throbbed. He sat up, feeling down his leg. The skin was raw, tender, but smooth. He was just glad it was still there. His dreams had been full of Lady Madeline ignoring his wishes and amputating his foot. It's not possible, she said in the darkness. He could make out the suggestion of her silhouette in the feeble starlight that penetrated the nest. How long have I slept? She leaned forward, breathed life into the fire again. A full night and a day and into the next, she said. She looked tired in the firelight, haggard, haunted. Through it I've watched the impossible. Your injuries vanished. You breathe fire, my lady. I channel the power of my ancestors for pyrotechnic tricks. What happened to you? It, it would require the power of a virtue. Are you human, Sabelard? All too human, my lady. Then tell me, how can this be? He drew his sword and laid it across his knees. The steel shimmered in the firelight. I'd just left the Duke's service, trying to find my own path in the world, but all I knew was fighting. I was good at it, very good. Hiring myself out as a guard seemed the obvious choice, but I had no interest in spending my days standing outside the same building getting rained on. I met a woman. She needed a guard for a journey she was taking, a journey that took her to every corner of the country. Stubborn protector, Lady Madeline said. Yeah. He paused, edited, continued. When we parted ways, she gave me this sword, Araleska, it's called. In the old tongue, that means resolve, she said. Yes, only the woman wasn't just a woman, and the sword is not just a sword. Every word of that version of the tale was true, and yet also the darkest lie. He hadn't known that the woman was the virtue perseverance, hadn't even known that the virtues truly existed, not like that. And when he'd left her, he slid the sword back into its sheath, set it down beside him. Get some sleep, my lady. I still need some more myself. Come the morning, my feet should be fit to walk on again, and we can see about getting you home. She passed her hand over the fire, and the flames ebbed. Good night, Sabalad. A sense of wrongness scratched at him until he finally opened his eyes. He was alone. Lady Madeline was not in the nest, and the bracken covering the entryway was clear. Morning streamed in, stinging his eyes. Sabelard rolled to his feet, now all but healed, and reached down to the sword belt. But the sword was gone. He stared at the bare earth. He crouched, placed his hand on the ground where the sword should be. Grains of dirt tickled his palm. Gone. Still crouched, he scanned the edges of the nest. If the blade had merely been nudged or set aside, he would know the sword was not misplaced. There was a hollow in his chest where it should be. It was futile to look, but still he did. Gone. He burst upright, leaped for the entrance to the nest. Lady Madeline, he shouted, not caring who else heard. Why she would take his sword, he didn't know, but... Gone. Sablard stood, grass tickling his new skin on his bare feet. It was gone, and either Lady Madeline had taken it, who knew where, or Perseverance had visited during the night and taken the damn thing back. Either way, 
I'm free, he said, daring to believe. He took a deep breath and released it with a joyful yell. He could go anywhere, do anything. His time, his life was his own again. He could take a lazy breakfast of jerky apples and cold water, squeeze his new feet into his old boots, and then amble wherever the mood took him. No urgent calls to answer, no damsels or squires in distress to rescue. No compulsion to help an old lady push her cart to market, or to hold a rope until his hands bled so the storm wouldn't take the fishing boat. You seem pleased, Perseverance said. Her accent was thick and difficult to understand, but Sablard was well practised with it. She sat on a fallen tree, dressed in flowing white, her silver hair cropped short to form a spiky crown. Sablard stalked back to the nest, his moment of joy leaden in his stomach. But she was in the nest, too. "'I'm here to speak with you, Sablard, and you know well that I will not leave until my goal is accomplished. Unlike some, I do not abandon—' "'Abandon,' he said. "'That was your word, not mine.' I spent a long time feeling guilty over that, but you know what? I left you in a comfortable coach station with coin in your purse to buy passage to wherever you needed to go. And yet the mission was unfulfilled. Six months. Six months I followed you from one end of the country to the other so you could, what, move a rock six inches to the left? Suggest a woman should buy the purple shawl and not the green? In six months you went nowhere more dangerous than a city street. You had no need of a bodyguard. Even if you'd been what you appeared, but you weren't. You were some whole-powerful cosmic being. You didn't need me. And you, ha you had me follow you around like a puppy on a lead. Ancestors, take me. I hated you. You never understood the task. Just as Araleska knows when you will be needed. We made small changes that would lead to greater ones. Oh, you've made quite a mess of your boots, she said. She picked them up, nose-wrinkling at the smell. When she set them down again, they were polished to a gleam. There, good as new. Sablard threw his hands up. And you never listen! Stubborn protector. It fascinates me how mortals choose to honour we virtues. Your father could have chosen determined, constant, resolute, tenacious. All would have brought you to me, but he chose stubborn. Why was that, do you think? Because he was a bull-headed bastard and wanted me to be the same, and I doubt he knew half of those words. Why are you here, Perseverance? I told you, the mission is unfinished, and I hate to leave things incomplete. You have to move your own damn rocks, he said. He pulled on his boots, stomped his feet to settle in. The boots weren't just clean, they were remade as though new. All the miles he'd walked in them to shape them to his feet undone. They pinched his heels, rubbed against the top of his feet. He cast about for his other possessions, but he had nothing other than the clothes he stood in. Goodbye, Perseverance. He took a step towards the nest's entrance. Should you not tidy the place before you leave? Perhaps see about restocking the supplies, Perseverance asked sweetly. That she was right didn't make it any easier. You misunderstand everything about us, she said as he packed leftovers back into the supply crate. 
You see the virtues as omnipotent entities. But we are not gods. Our powers are not nearly so all-encompassing. We merely embody the ideals your people choose to venerate. We can affect the world, but only with nudges. Act through those dedicated to us. Has your education taught you nothing? Sablard picked up the canteens. I'm going to go refill these. I gave you the strength to be my champion, Sablard. The canteen straps creaked in his fist. And yet you denied me the one thing you claim to embody. Compulsion is not perseverance. Control is not determination. You called it an education. But that's to cover what it was, a punishment, a petty punishment for the slight that I gave you when I went on with my life instead of following you like a pet. The one thing I don't understand is why you took the blade back. Just leave. Your work here is done. There's nothing more for you here. And like that, the virtue was gone. Like her sword, once the work was done, her influence fled. With each step, Sablard's mood rallied. He was truly free. For the first time in years, his choices were all his own. The swords couldn't summon him into action again. That link was severed. He wouldn't be grateful to Perseverance. It was her curse that had blighted his life after all. But he was glad that she'd lifted it now. He didn't understand her reason, but then he rarely did. He hoped Lady Madeline was all right. He had no way to find her now, so she would have to fend for herself. But if she headed straight home, she should be safe. The forest reached almost the bank of the arrow here. He stayed in cover and kept the shadows as much as he could. He didn't want to run into a raiding party if he could avoid it. Sablard checked the bank, was clear, and dipped the first canteen into the river. It was a beautiful day. The sun was warm, the sky was blue, a gentle breeze teased the leaves on the trees, and he had the whole world to explore once more. No obligations, no compulsions, no duties. Genuine ancestors be praised freedom. If he was further from enemy territory, he'd whistle a jaunty tune. He would need a weapon, eventually. For now, he could make do with a stout stick, but first order of business when he reached civilization would be to get some steel on his belt again. The few coins in his purse wouldn't cover that, but if he headed to Hadar first, he still knew a few rangers who would get him a sword. Hadar first, then, and after that perhaps he'd take a ship, get off the mainland for a while. The only fly in the ointment was his new boots, which were really starting to pinch now. He sat and took them off again, time enough to suffer those when he had to move on. For now he bent to fill the second canteen. A shadow under the water rippled towards him, and an Asaran rose from the river, water sloughing off his scales. Beyond him more lizards cut through the water. Reflexively, Sablard swung, catching the half-full canteen against the lizard's head. The canteen burst, and the Asaran staggered backwards, more from surprise than injury, Sablard suspected. Still, its grip on its spear loosened, and Sablard grabbed, snatched, and retreated. A dozen Asarans swarmed on the bank in pursuit. There was no way he could beat twelve of them. He'd barely beaten two before, and that was with a sword in his hand. His spear work was fair, but no more than that. His only chance was to convince the lizards he wasn't worth the risk. 
bravado and front. It was a thin hope. Good to see you boys, he said. One of the Asarans shook his spear and hissed angrily. Sablar didn't understand the words, but the tone was clear enough. Come on then, I'm barefoot with a spear. Who's got the scales to take me on? Sablard? Lady Madeline was there, stepping from behind a tree, along the bank from the Asarans. In her hands she held Araleska, the virtue's blade. It rippled with fire along its length. It had never done that for Sablard. Still, it was clear from the way that she held the sword she had no training, and the heavy blade was already too much for her. One of the lizards looked across, hissed a warning to its clansmen. Three of them turned to Lady Madeline, the rest continued towards him. Sablard, Lady Madeline said, her voice cracked steel. Go! Get out of here! This isn't your fight! Sablard held his spear across his body. He said, I'll keep you safe, my lady. Nothing changed. An Asaran lunged at Lady Madeline, and she swung Araleska in a wide, unsteady arc, her lips moving in a whisper as she did. A great gout of fire erupted from its edge, filling the riverbank. Sableard threw himself backwards, but still caught the leading edge. He rolled over and over to extinguish the sparks on his clothes. The Asarans had no such chance. Sableard rolled to his feet once more, dashed through the now-burning undergrowth. He found Lady Madeline collapsed at the far edge of the conflagration. A charred Asaran spear pierced her leg. She looked pale, spent. The sword lay by her hand, licks of flame still played along its blade, but fading, flickering out. My lady! Sablard scooped her up, staggered away from the fire. He couldn't carry her far without taking time to check her leg wound, but they couldn't stay in the fire and smoke. That was some trick. Didn't realise you could do that. Lady Madeline choked out a cough. Neither did I, she rasped. The sword. Far enough for now. Sablard lowered her to the ground. The wound was deep, but clear of fragments as far as he could see. The canteen slung around his shoulder was empty, or certainly didn't contain enough to clean the wound. But pressure was the first priority, and, worst case, the straps of the canteen might serve as a tourniquet. The sleeve on your dress is the closest thing we have to clean cloth, my lady. I need something to stop the bleeding. May I... She nodded, teeth gritted. She was going into shock. Sablard tugged at the shoulder of her dress, yanked it loose, and the seam parted. He pressed the cloth to her leg as firmly as he could, one-handed, while he unclasped his cloak to cover her bare arm. Keeping her warm would be important, too. That done, he applied both hands to keeping pressure on the wound. What were you thinking, my lady? You were going to take me home? You said so. Her voice was weak, her tone dazed. I, I couldn't let you. But you had a magic sword. I thought my magic hadn't helped before, but your sword, I thought... Oh, Lady Madeline, it doesn't help you fight. She coughed, spluttered. Found that out. He should go back for the sword. Its magic could heal the wound, or... In his possession it healed wounds. In hers, would it still do that? Perhaps for her, its power was the fire. It might not do anything to help her heal. Besides, if he picked it up again, might it rebind to him? Better to leave it where it was. 
You really should have let me take you home, he said. She shook her head. My nephew, little Daniel, the Asaran's raiding party, took him. I had to rescue him. My mission. The pressure wasn't working. She'd lost too much blood. Stay with me, Sayblood said, because there was nothing else he could do. Save him. Sir Knight. Protect Daniel. May your ancestors welcome you with love, Lady Madeline. Sayblood stood. He spared one last glance west, west towards Hadar, the sea, a life of his choice lived on his terms. Then he turned and ran back to the flame. The fire was guttering out already, the foliage too damp to spread. There at the edge, Araleska lay in the mud. Its fire was out, but the metal still steamed. He stared at it. The sword had been forced upon him the first time, and when it was, his life had ceased to be his own. He was free of that now. He could still go anywhere. He still had that choice. But he'd failed Lady Madeline, and somewhere out there, her nephew needed a protector. His hand closed around the hilt of the virtue's blade. He had someone to protect, and he would see it done, even if the whole Asaran nation stood in the way. And that brings us to the end of another story, and rapidly approaching the end of another podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed Virtue's Blade. It is set in the same universe as the uh, West Haven chapters that I read back in the very early days of this podcast. Uh, West Haven is my uh, D&D campaign world that I use for a, a number of different campaigns now. And I, I really like the setting. I'm really still tr- struggling to find a way to make it work in fiction rather than in role-playing. And actually, some of the ideas that came up in Virtue's Blade when I was working on that has given me a new perspective on that. So I might actually come back to West Haven in the not very distant future. But I've got so much other stuff to be working on at the moment, it won't be imminent. Um, Thank you very much for listening today. Uh, I will be back in uh, September with another podcast. I don't know what I've been reading for that, uh, but uh, I'm sure I'll come up with something. Thanks so much for listening, and I will catch you uh, next time. Cheers.